Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Mr. Paul Morrissey on the topic, Love and its Christian Fulfillment. This June 2009 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Mr. Paul Morrissey is a lecturer in philosophy and theology at the University of Notre Dame, Australia. Well, thanks for uh, having me. I came here towards the end of last year, I think, and I was speaking about the Old Testament, so this is a rather different topic. Uh, love, or love, as the case may be. Um, and you have to forgive me because uh, this week has been a rather chaotic one. We've had to, as uh, Robert over here, <laughs> had to have all our results in and all the marking done. It's been rather chaotic and we had our... Uh, had our fourth child two weeks ago, so it's been a bit chaotic at home. And, uh, so if I start uh, nodding off, <laughs> you can wake me up. Um, so please forgive me uh, I'm a little bit uh, exhausted. Um, now I had the privilege, or perhaps the uh, not so great privilege, of growing up, or well, reaching my teenage years in the 80s. And uh, the 80s was... Uh, one of the icons of the 80s, in fact, died today, Michael Jackson. And, uh, and uh, when I give this little talk, I've done this talk a few times on, on love, I always bring, bring up some songs, uh, love songs that uh, I remember when I was growing up. Uh, Tina Turner had a great hit in the 80s, What's Love Got to Do With It? What's Love But a Secondhand Emotion? which is not exactly what I'm going to be speaking about tonight in terms of love. Um, there's a song by Pat Benatar in the 80s, which was a big hit, Love is a Battlefield, um, which again, uh, hopefully the, what I'm going to speak about tonight won't reflect a, a battlefield. Um, those of you perhaps a bit, uh, a bit older would remember um, the Supremes who sang about love, that you can't hurry love. Um, you just have to wait. You know love won't come easy. It's a game of give and take. And, of course, Lennon McCartney cried, all you need is love. Um, but pop singers haven't, certainly in their lives and, and also in their lyrics, haven't really reached the heart of the true meaning of love. And so what I want to do tonight is uh, give a little reflection, particularly on um, some of John Paul II's writings on love, uh, his analysis of love, which is a little bit different than Theology of the Body, which some of you may have, may have heard about and, and heard uh, spoken about. It's, it goes back a little bit further to more his philosophical writings, which can be a little bit demanding. But John Paul II was truly an expert in humanity. Um, and... I think I count it as one of the great blessings of my life to have grown up uh, mostly under his pontificate and his, uh, his teaching and also truly one of the great blessings of my life was to, to meet the late Holy Father um, when he was a lot older and quite frail but uh, um, a profound uh, holy, holy man and a great teacher. So I want to speak about, um, first I'm going to sort of break down what is love, look at this question, what is love? And then look at um, 
the idea that love can be difficult and look at something how we overcome the difficulties of love, so to speak. So to begin, what is love? Basically, there are four dimensions to love, as John Paul II writes about. And these four dimensions are uh, interrelated and they all feed in one to the other. First being the physical dimension, the corporal central dimension of love, the physical uh, dimension of human love. Um, which looks really at the complementarity of the sexes and our our bodies. So the physical dimension. Then we have the affective dimension, which is love on the emotional level, um, which is the human values of the other person, which excite us. A person's courage, intelligence, uh, wisdom, humour, all those sort of things. So the affective dimension. Then we have the personal dimension of love, which is love for the other as who that person is, as who he or she is. Not what they have, not what they own, not what they look like, but who they are, the personal dimension. And the final dimension of love is the religious dimension, the transcendent dimension of love. This is where we see the divine origin of the other person, um, that we are in awe of the other person's dignity being created in the image and likeness of God. So we have the four dimensions, the physical, what we can see, the emotive or the uh, affective, which is what, you know, the emotional level, uh, human values, Uh, the personal, which is this seeing the other for truly being uh, who they are, loving the other for who they are, and finally the religious, this transcendent dimension. As I said, these four dimensions are all part of love and all necessary in love. And they all work together, depending on what type of love it is, to various levels. Um, and each of dimension, the Pope, uh, the late Holy Father, writes, has its own pitfalls, its own dangers. So I'll just go through some of these dangers of the four dimensions. The physical dimension, the danger of the physical dimension, which is good in and of itself, to to love someone other, you know, be attracted to someone because of how they look. Uh, the danger is when we objectify that person. We see them purely as a as a, a body for our, our um, enjoyment, gratification. So that's the pitfall of the first dimension. The pitfall of the second, the effective dimension, is um, the problem here we have is that we idealise the other. The other becomes... Um, lovable purely for what they possess in terms of their human values. So I love that person because of their humour, for example. You know, they're funny, they make me laugh, I love them. Or I love them for their intelligence. Um, The pitfall here is, and this is particularly in terms of, uh, say, marriage and and romantic love, is that, you know, one day we'll wake up and we won't find the jokes funny anymore. You know, we won't find them necessarily completely intelligent as we thought they were. We'd idealise that quality um, and therefore, once that goes, the the actual love can can fall through. Um, Now, a generalisation that John Paul II points out is that men seem to have the pitfall or fall for the first pitfall to do with physical love, objectifying the other, and women tend generally to have the second pitfall to idealise the other, the human qualities of the other. Again, that's a generalisation. 
meaning it's generally true. Uh, there are exceptions, of course. Um, the personal dimension, well, we might think that the personal dimension, there can't be any downfall to you know, loving someone for who they are. But the problem, or the pitfall here, is to idealise personal love, to idealise, you know, I'm going to, uh, you know, when I get married, I'm just going to fall in love, you know, I'm going to love the other truly for who they are. But it becomes an idealised uh, understanding of love. And then when the nitty-gritty of love through action every day, we can forget about that. So the problem with this third dimension of love, the personal dimension, is an idealisation of it. The final one, the religious dimension, again, we can think, well, there can't be any pitfall to seeing the other for being a, you know, uh, creating the image and likeness of God, and being in awe of that. Um, the problem can be here, the pitfall here, is that we spiritualise love. That we, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm married, you know, I love my wife because she's creating the image and likeness of God, but that's the only reason I, I love her and everything else about her, I don't like her. Um, so um, this is where we can separate that and, and spiritualise love, which can be a problem. So all four are good and important, but all four are, in a sense, dangerous as well and have their pitfalls. So they're the four dimensions of love. Late John Paul II also wrote about, uh, gave an analysis of love, which I think is really quite profound. Um, and he speaks about two things. One is that love is a noun and love is a verb, which doesn't sound very romantic. Um, and you can't see uh, perhaps a uh, pop song written about that. Love is a noun. <laughs> love is a verb. <laughs> it wouldn't be necessarily that, uh, that attractive. But I think it's, it's a profound truth about love. So I'll just speak about the first dimension. Love is a noun. In other words, love is a thing. A noun is a thing. An objective reality. It is an event. And it's something that impacts on us. Love is, as the great philosopher said, love is passion. Passion, in the Latin word, meaning to suffer. What this means is that we suffer love. This means that we don't ask love to happen to us. We don't invite love to happen to us. It just happens. In other words, we don't say, okay, um, you know, in three weeks' time, on, on you know, Thursday, the whatever the date is, at about three o'clock, I'm going to fall in love. Because it's, it doesn't work like that. Love happens to us. We suffer love. It's an event that takes place out of us, outside of us. So, love impacts on us. This is the meaning of love being a noun. It's out there. It's a reality and impacts on us. This is what John Paul II calls the affective union dimension of love. So, try to break this down, what this means. is that Love is out there happening all the time. It's when the other, another person, comes into my heart. This is the affective union. The other person's presence comes into my heart, into my being. So, you know, I see the other... And she attracts me, maybe physically, that physical dimension of love. She's an attractive woman. And suddenly I see her and she 
effective union comes into my heart. I see her and she comes into my heart. I haven't asked for it, haven't searched for it, but she's there. And she's affected me. I see her, may not even speak to her, but she's come into my heart. This is the first aspect of love. Maybe it's uh, an effective dimension of love. You know, you're at a party and you're speaking to someone and they're quite funny. Suddenly their humour affects me. Their humour enters my heart, in a sense. And that person comes into my heart. This is what John Paul II calls an effective union occurs. Me and the other. The other coming into my heart. Now this dimension is always those first two dimensions of love, the physical or the emotive or affective dimension, is that first part of love. This happens all the time, and it will happen until we die. Every day of our lives there's this effective union happening. This first um, or beginning of love is happening every day of our lives. Why? Because we're human. This is how we operate. This is how love works. Love is out there because love is the other, impacting us all the time. And it's not going to go away. Even when, you know, you get married and and whatever, it still happens. We still have these effective unions happening all the time. Now, that's the first moment, effective union. The second moment of love is desire. Something has happened to me Something has impacted me. This other person has come into my heart. The second moment of love is, well, I desire to be with that person. I desire something because of this union that's occurred, this effective union. I want to be with the other. I don't want to be alone. I want to be with that other who has affected me, come into my heart, affected me in a profound way, Move my heart, I, I want to be with the other. This is the second moment of love, desire. It's at this moment where we're called to verify love, to verify love, which again doesn't sound very romantic, but it's very important. So, before I can show love, before love can become that second part, the verb, I need to verify love. So the effective union happens. I'm going home on the train and there's an attractive girl sitting opposite. You know, I, it's an effective union. I'm, a, I'm struck by her. You know, she's very attractive. It happens, in, you know, she, in a sense she's come into my heart, her attractiveness. I'm moved. So then I have to verify love. And... You know, being a married man, I can quickly verify love. You know, I can say, well, that's not love. <laughs> you know, it, it's happened. It's been an effective union. She is attractive. But I need to verify that love. And I verify it by, you know, I'm a married man. And therefore, this is not love. In other words, I'm not going to go across the other side of the train, sit next to her and start a conversation, because that would be an unfaithful act. So we need to verify love. This is a lot more difficult when we're uh, single. If you're married, it's quite easy in terms of um, you know, the opposite sex. But if you're single, obviously, it's a, it's a bit more complex. So once we've verified this first moment, we reach a moment of choice. And this is where love 
ceases to be a noun, something that's just happened to us, a thing that's affected us, to be a verb, a choice, a decision. But it always has to come after the verification. Um, so we look at our situation in life, we look at you know who the other person is, etc., etc., to whether we make a decision. So if we're at a party, the effective union's happened, you know, the next day, do I make that call? You know, that's a acting, that's a decision to act on that effective union. Is it possible, because I've seen, and I've seen very attractive women, women, but then I, I don't, they may be attractive, but I'm not attracted to them. Maybe they're not attracted to me, but, uh, but they may have something that I don't like. Yeah, so that, therefore that's not really an effective union. If, you, yeah. if you're not actually attracted to them, it's not an effective union, because there's no... They're attractive, yeah, you know what they, may, they might be objectively attractive, but to you personally, then, that's not, so that's not. Whereas someone, someone else may be attracted, and that would be an effective union where you, you desire... It means you move to a desire in some sense, okay? You see the good of the other and you want to be with that person. Um... Once this desire occurs and it moves into an action, love is an action, the final end of love is, is union, you know, the perfect union. Um, now again, we can talk about love here, as, as, uh, here I'm talking more in the sense of uh, romantic love and ultimately married love. But obviously it's the same you know, in a sense with friendship and, and all forms of relationships. Um, now, once we've reach the point where love is, in that sense, a verb, and we make a decision, we make the call, we start, you know, in a sense, dating, then we come to, you know, the ultimate decision, in a sense, in terms of, you know, whether we want to um, to marry that person or, or to spend in a, in a in true union, uh, selfless union with the other. Um, and here, we move to the the classical definition of love, and that's uh, of Aristotle and, and Aquinas, love is to want the good of the beloved. The good of the beloved. Now, the good of the beloved is ultimately their fulfilment. And the true fulfilment is, is eternal life with God. Um, so, in a sense, to, to verify love in this aspect, uh, there's a couple of questions that are, are really important. Um, the first is, what do you want for me? You know, what do you want for me? Do you want my ultimate fulfilment? That's a, that's the sort of answer you, you you want. But it's not just desiring a final end for someone, which which is true love. So you may think, oh, you know, I desire that you know you have eternal life with God. That's well and good, but marriage requires more than that. And marriage requires, you know, smaller goods that build to that final good. So in other words, what will you do for me to help me achieve that final good? What will you do for me? What what goods can you provide me in terms of my daily life um, pointing towards this ultimate good? So these four dimensions of love and these... Um, these different aspects of love, the effective union desire and then ultimately real union, um, is what 
John Paul II talks about in terms of when he looks at love. But love is difficult, which is what I want to look at now. And, you know, we we come up against these affective unions all the time, and we'll always have them throughout our life, being human as we are. And so these affective unions and how we deal with them, you know, there are pitfalls, there's difficulties, such as I said, objectifying the other, seeing the other purely as a, you know, some sort of object for, that can, can gratify me, idealising the other, their qualities. Um, another big problem we have today is idolising love. I, it's, I love her, so it's okay. You know, that's a classic, um, a classic um, excuse of uh, what we would call, you know, immoral sexual behaviour today. Is um, we idolise love. I love them. It's all about love, so it's okay. So, how do we overcome some of these difficulties? Well, there are four ways that we deal with, four different types, if you like, personality types in some way, that we can, you know, overcome some of these pitfalls. Well, not actually overcome, but four ways that we can actually um, deal with love. Two, one of them is the most excellent way. One of them is um, fine but imperfect, and the other two are not so good. So I'll look at the uh, I'll look at the uh, the fine but not perfect first. And this is what we call the 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 man or the or the woman, but man here in the generic sense, the man who has control of his will, but there's no real integration between his affections, his emotions, and his will. And this is, um, in, in traditional sort of languages, called the continent man, or this has different, different connotations today, but the man in control. So this, this man or woman has been raised well, is good, virtuous education, knows the truth and accepts the truth about morality. Um, they know what, what's good in life and what, what's meant for, for a good life, but they really sort of only know it in theory. The motive for their actions is, is, tends to be more around punishment, uh, consequences, reputation, um, all these motives are outside the action itself, outside the moral life. Um, you know, is someone, is someone see me? You know, did someone do this to me? So they have a strong will, but their enjoyment of life is, is limited. There's a gap between their reason and their affectivity. Um, so to give you, any, again, an example, um, this man may, may be at a party. You know, he's married. There's an attractive woman comes up to talk to him. Um, you know, she doesn't realise he's he's married and starts chatting away to him. And he's you know he's attracted. There's an effective union happens here, but he's you know he's he's he's, he's a strong will, so he knows that he can't. I'm not going to speak to her. You know, I'll shut myself off. It's not immoral what he's doing. Nothing wrong with it. But he can't you know enjoy the conversation for what it is because he's not integrated in terms of his reason and effectivity. 
So that's the, the good but not perfect, perhaps, response. The not, uh, not good responses, is it called the, well, the opposite to the, the continent man, the incontinent man, um, who's also could be well educated, uh, agrees with the meaning of life, what's good in life, and, and everything. Um, and again, there's a gap between reason and affection, but the opposite way. So, um, they don't really want to understand, or they sort of dismiss their reason once the affectivity kicks in. Kicks in. So they know it in theory, but in situation the knowledge sort of disappears very quickly. So they, again, perhaps give the same example, uh, the married man, the woman comes over, um, they don't have as much control with their will. They encourage the woman. They may not necessarily you know, take it any further, but they encourage the woman and you know, sort of flirt with her and whatever. Enjoy that. Um, again, this could obviously lead very quickly to more severe sin. So the will is very weak. Um, they seem to enjoy life a lot more, rather than the, the continent man, but it's always very temporary and followed quickly by guilt because they know the truth and, uh, uh, and regret and shame. Um, then we have what uh, John Paul II calls the vicious man, and vicious here not meaning uh, violent, but vicious in the sense of, of, um, of not knowing not knowing the good life, not knowing the truth, and then equating, in fact, goodness and truth with actual immorality. Um, the good life is to follow the pleasurable life. Um, so it's fine to objectify the other and use them for gratification because that, that gives me pleasure. And so this is what's called, the, in a sense, a vicious approach to love, to purely use the other and again, not necessarily, and perhaps subjectively, they may not be sin involved because they don't even know that there's something wrong with that. Um, the motivation is purely for pleasure. Um, they, again, seem to enjoy life. They have great satisfaction, pleasure, but it's never satisfied. That's why they want more, 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 and uh, are never satisfied. The pleasure, in fact, consumes them. Um, in sexuality, that can become an addiction. So I'll leave the best to last is called the virtuous man or woman. Again, well-educated, knows the truth, but the reason and affections are integrated. This person knows the meaning of pleasures, affective pleasures, and what is their end. This person will use the meaning of life and what, it, what is good and what is true to interpret affections and feelings and desires, to interpret them so as to integrate them. So the desires that occur in this person's life are always ordered towards the end, both of their life and also the other's life. Um, in other words, it's not as so much a suppression of feelings, not a suppression of affection, but an integration of them into the whole life, into reason and will. So he knows what the good life is, both in theory, but also in, in, in the affective dimension in the heart. Um, the will is very strong, extremely strong, but integrated and uh, towards affection. 
So, perhaps you use the same example. Married man, party, attractive woman, nice conversation. Immediately, he, he understands this woman's attractive. Immediately understands that, you know, in some ways he's, she's moved his heart, but immediately understands and integrates that to her end, which is, you know, heaven, uh, his end, which is heaven, and faithfulness to his wife, which is his vocation, and can speak to her as, you know, a child of God without, um, without that. So that's a, a virtuous man. And, and in a sense, we're all probably a mixture of all four in some ways, depending on, on which area of our life. And this can do with all areas of the moral life. You know, I'm talking about love. All areas of the moral life, these four mm-hmm. dimensions are, are active. And, um, Does that mean that people are, don't have a formation in their religion that, that maybe there are aspects that they, uh, those four aspects, some of them are missing? For example, uh, they may engage in serial, illicit relationships because they might get on that you know, that physical engagement, then that connection engagement, but then but the other two spiritual bits and pieces, uh, they connect. Yeah, absolutely. So it could be either they've had no education, or they may, may have education, but because their, um, their will is very weak, they may forget, you know, once the, once the feeling comes, they can forget their, you know, what is good, what is true, and, you know, they'll experience pleasure and then afterwards they'll think, oh, did it again, you know, which is very common, very common. In fact, um, you know, some people have a real challenge and weakness in, in the area of love and, and sexuality. Some will have it in another area. You know. We all have our little, you know, as St Paul says, little thorn that uh, we deal with our entire life and it's... Um, and it's uh, constant thing that, uh, you know, I'm always struck by, uh, you know, how often go to confession and confess the same thing. And I think, you know, <laughs> sometimes you think, well, what, what am I doing? You know? But uh, that, that's, that's part of who we are. But we're called always to, um, to examine ourselves, examine our conscience and, and work on those areas of weakness. And, uh, um, but... I think love, because it's this universal experience, we're all called to to a response to this in some ways. Some of us may not necessarily experience the pitfalls as much as others. Um, some are very, you know, you know, marry and marry easily, and and then uh, you know it's very easy for them to be faithful. And others, it's it's very tough. That's, that's who they are. But we're all called to to the same thing. Um, but I think it's good to be aware of these different. Aspects of love and, and how to um, how to respond to these uh, everyday experience because it happens every day. We're we're affected by the other every day of our lives, unless we don't see someone every day. Whatever. Um, I just want to speak now just briefly about one other area that John Paul II wrote about, I think, very profoundly, which is another aspect to. Um, how the human person deals with love, and that is uh, shame or modesty. Um, sexual shame or modesty is a vital part of the human 
if you like, armory in terms of love. Um, and it's it's one value that has been, been completely uh, overridden in the last uh, generation or two. It's one uh, dimension of, of Western society that you know, everyone held, even if they didn't believe, there was a certain sense of modesty um, and sexual shame was, was the norm. And by shame here, I'm meaning a certain hiddenness of the sexual dimension of the person. I'm not talking about shame as in uh, the shame after sin, but I'm talking shame as in uh, modesty. Um, and I, I don't need to tell you that uh, sexual shame or modesty is is completely um, derided today. Um, John Paul II has a profound reflection on, on um, really on Genesis. That the, uh, after original sin, they realised they were naked and, and immediately part of the armoury that in a sense was given to them was shame. They covered themselves to protect their sexual value. To protect their sexual value. Um, so what sexual modesty means is we hide our overtly sexual values. Now modesty, as John Paul II points out, is different for men and women and, and it's quite complicated. And again, we're dealing with generalisations. That is generally true. But it is generally true that men are more sensual than women. In other words, they're more affected visually. That's why pornography is basically a man thing because they, they experience sexual pleasure mostly through the eyes, or sexual uh, attraction through the eyes, visualised. So this is why for the woman it's very important to, in a sense, hide that visual aspect. Um, to hide that visual aspect to protect them from being objectified by the man. Um, For the woman, the woman generally is more attracted um, by affection or by touch. And so for the man it's important to yeah, not so much hide his personality but not to flirt with one's personality um, because um, when it's inappropriate. Because the woman can tend to be more attracted to that. Now one of the problems is, because of how we are, see I'm a man and I only know myself as a man, I am naturally, and this is strange, I'm naturally more sexually modest than a woman. Because I'm aware that I objectify the other. That's why a man tends to dress more modestly than a woman. Which is strange because it's, it's, it should be the other way around in a sense. Um, and a woman, and particularly today, because there's no cultural sort of um, education on this. Um, to anything, oh, it's fine, you know, to dress the way I am and try to attract the, a man, not knowing that, you know, they're, they're being objectified in doing so. So this is a really important dimension of of protecting um, of love, protecting love. Um, there's a fantastic book. Some of you may may know it. By a, in fact, a, a young Jewish woman in the States called Wendy Shalit, 
called The Return to Modesty. It's really a fantastic book on, on this whole whole question. She's writing, again, not theologically at all, but just purely on a, as a young, attractive uh, Jewish woman saying, we've got to get back to modesty because women are being destroyed because we're, you know, being objectified because of the way we dress and act. But I think modesty and sexual shame, as, as uh, the late Pope uh, spoke about, is important in other dimensions, though. It's important to have a, an emotional modesty as well. Um, in other words, we don't, you know, in our first conversation with someone, you know, spill our guts, so to speak. Um, you know, there's a certain sort of modesty and restraint in relation to the other, um, which is important. There's also a modesty of jest, and this is particularly important for courtship and when uh, a couple are dating, um, that, you know, jests have to be modest because they can lead to, um, again, this you know, pitfalls of love, so to speak. Um, and also, I think, even a, a modesty in terms of, uh, of one's entire life. And again, this is particularly, I think, true with courtship, that um, where we protect the other, protect the freedom of the other, by um, being modest in terms of, you know, my entire life. I don't want to, you know, I'm not married yet, so I don't, I don't want to share my entire family, my entire history, everything, put that on the table, and, uh, and suddenly you're part of that history, family, and everything and yet we're not married, and, and, and suddenly there's a lack of freedom. I've seen this quite a, quite a lot, and it's, a, it's quite a common pitfall today. Um, I know in my own family there was um, a case where, you know, the, uh, a couple, you know, going out for years and years and years, and in a sense both families had accepted them completely, you know, spent Christmas and everything together. They weren't married, and so it was a real blockage of freedom to say, you know, will you marry me, because it was... How could you sort of sort of say no in one sense because I'm part of the family? You know, I'm not just saying no to you. I'm saying no to the family as well. All that history. It's 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 complex. So I think it's really important to have that sort of modesty and um, of one's one's life uh, before marriage because I think that's something again we've lost a little bit. You know, the old idea of courtship. Uh, which we see is very quaint today, but I think there's a profound truth in it where, where um, you know, it was only after a few dates that perhaps, you know, the, the, the boy would go and see the father and say, look, you know, can I have permission just to you know, take your daughter out to the, to the movies or whatever? He might say, okay. And, and then after a, a bit, bit longer, you know, he may, it may have permission to come and meet the parents and, and, and you know, all things going well, to ask for the hand of marriage, but there's no sense of, you know, being part of the family for two or three years. And, and again, this real lack of freedom, I think, to, to make a decision. That's why I think a lot of people get married later and later and later, because um, of this lack of this, this modesty, I think, and, uh, and this idea of courtship that we've lost. The other, I think, and I mentioned it before about jest, you know, um, Two or three generations ago, you know, a kiss meant marriage, you know, and, uh, and 
today it's you know far from the case. You know, I think for younger people it's very hard. You know that they're um, they're entering relationships. You know, thirteen and fourteen, and then you know by the time they're married, they may have had you know twenty relationships, so to speak. Uh, five of them have had Christmas with their family, and uh, it's, it's all rather complex and quite difficult to make a decision. So I think this is a, a profound truth about love, this, this modesty that protects us, but also it gives us a real freedom um, in love. And, um, uh, in the old days, young people used to, well, when I say old days, I'm talking about the 50s, 60s, young people used to date a lot more casually, mm without being serious about anything and enjoy people's company. Mm. They might they might uh, have several dates with several young people mm. without being serious about it. It seems nowadays that young people, as soon as they start dating one person, well, they have a fixation, you know, that's the person you're going out with. Yeah, it's like this going out. It's, it's sort of a pseudo-marriage for a little while. Isn't it? And so, so you suddenly, you know, you go out with someone. So suddenly, you know, next week you're over at the family dinner, and then next week you're, um, you're, uh, you know, it's uh, exchanging gifts and. It's like immediately fairly intense. Yeah, it's very intense. Well, mm. How how do you see it in relation to which is the best way to, um, which is the right way? in an ideal um, situation. Um, young people don't seem to have the choice these days because they're, it's more nuclear. It's not... Yeah, it's the culture. So it's very much the culture. I think, it, I think it's really important to, to educate younger people to, um, in the truth about sexuality and, and love, which is, which is good. But then I think even culturally we can help by... By, um, I know this is the case uh, in terms of uh, my wife's family, I'll give this as an example, where they encourage their children that, um, they, that, they, wouldn't, that they couldn't bring a you know, boyfriend or girlfriend home unless it was you know, to announce an engagement. So, it was, so there was no, they could come, but it was always it had to be with a group of people. And there was no, you know, sitting on the couch holding hands or they could, you could, you know, if there's someone you're interested in and you'd invite them with a group of friends and they'd be welcome to come to dinner. Um, just so, you know, perhaps they could meet the family or whatever. But there was a certain distance because uh, it led the people to be a bit freer. Um, and I must admit that, I mean, for them, again, this is in another country, it's not Australia, but... It's quite countercultural still, even there. That the the children, you know, accepted that and didn't see any burden. And mm. all, five of them are married now, and <laughs> it was the case that uh, you know when I went there is the first wasn't the first time I'd been to that their house, but um, you know I was I never went there as a boyfriend, you know. so, yeah, so. which is I think it's interesting and. It is countercultural, but it used to. That's what sort of used to happen in a sense. But mostly, again, because of what you said, things weren't so serious. It was like, oh, I've got this boyfriend now, and we're we're going out, and that's me and her, and that that's it. You know, there's no one, no one else, and 
you know, then we'll split up and we'll have tears and need counselling and then we'll get on the train again. And so you've almost been married five or six times before you get married. It's very hard for a young person to choose their marriage, I think. And they go into marriage very wounded in that sense, I think, as well. Wounded. Wounded. Mm. Experience the same kind of things that you mentioned. 
Yep, uh, we all experienced effective uh, union. So, um, and this, I've got a quote here I want to read that just coincidentally had with me from Francis Sales. Yep. He's talking about affections. Now, I think in this quote, he, he is using the term affection, uh, it could be a range of things, but it's particularly affection for another person, so affection yeah. for a creature. Yep. And he's talking about spiritual development, and this is what he says, because there's another approach to maybe it fits into one of your categories, I'm not sure. He says, when there arises in our heart an affection for something which is not God, or not love for the sake of God, we must instantly banish it, saying, depart, there is no room here for thee. In other words, if you're really trying to give, you know, in, in for spiritual perfection, if you're trying to give your heart completely to God, that's what you must do. You must manage the other affections immediately, according to Yes, yeah, so that would be, it'd be good to have some context on that in a sense. But yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, I suppose it depends on the, uh, on the actual context and, and whatever. I think it. I think though. Again, virtue is about. Um, again, this approach that I was talking about about this integration. So, I, I don't know if it's necessarily healthy to always sort of say, well. To banish, in a sense, to banish. But again, it could be banishment in a, in a, in a sense after integration. So, in other words, um, again, which is probably what St. Francis of Sales is, is meaning here. But again, say using that same example I had before, but just say it was it was not a married man, it was a religious brother. He's there. He's having this conversation. With pretty attractive. We probably presume that the woman's not trying to seduce him, but anyway. Um, he um, you know, could certainly acknowledge that that's an attractive woman. Could certainly acknowledge that. She's a child of God and her beauty is a gift of God. Beauty of creation. And then banish any you know, thought. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to entertain any, I'm not going to linger on that at all. Do you know what I mean? It's like that. So what Francis Sales is talking about is perfection, perfecting one's spiritual life mm-hmm. and, and achieving union with God. Yeah, yeah. And if you to achieve union with God uh, and you give your heart to Jesus Christ, he's saying, well, don't let any creature have even a little corner of your heart. Because that... Uh, yeah, I think the problem is, though... Yeah, I think the problem, though, to, to use that, is that it's always happening. So there's always, as a human being, as a human person, you're always being affected by the other. Always. And it's not necessarily, it's not just sexually. You know, it's always, always being affected. So, again, say a religious brother in the, in the community. There's one of the brothers is really humorous. He makes his great jokes. It's fantastic. I love to be around him. To the point where I neglect all my other duties, you know. You know so I'll go and have a chat to him about the footy. You know, it's fantastic. That's a good thing. It's an effective union, because it's the effective dimension. It's happening, it's entering my heart. Something, nothing improper about it at all. It's a good thing. So I think it's, it's not good to say, you know, get out of there. You know, it's more, okay, I acknowledge that, but I'm, I'm choosing God. I'm going to go and pray. I'm not going to go over and sit next to the guy over there who's very funny and I enjoy. But I acknowledge his you know, goodness, 
And there's a place for that, but I'm off to pray. So it sort of makes... But again, in a religious life, though, you're right, there's a sense of, you know, I'm not even going to go to a party, because that's going to... That'll, these things will happen if I go to a party. You know what I mean? It's, um, it's, so, again, it's context of life yeah, in a big place. It depends on the circumstance, doesn't it? Because yep. there's the beautiful platonic unions between St. Francis, uh, sort of, um, St. John of the Cross and Teresa, Teresa of Avila. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which is a beautiful yeah. friendship. And, but then but then again, they would have had to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm called to a you know, to give my life entirely to God. It doesn't mean I can't have a friend. Yeah, but I, I think one of the key points here is, and I, I mean, I accept the validity of what Arla has said and what you're saying, but, but uh, there's, there's a distinction between that kind of friendship and giving a part of your heart to somebody else other than God. Yeah. I think that's the distinction. I mean, I, it's the I, I don't think Teresa Ravel or John of the Cross are... Uh, gave a part of it. They were, they were great friends. Yeah, although, again, it's it's what... So if a friendship is taking you from God, for example, that's when you would say, well, okay, you know, I, I value this friendship. And I value... I'm going to pray for that person, but I'm not going to... I'm not... That's the end, you know, I'm not going to... Or if... If, um, you know, someone rings me up to go to a party, I'm a married man, I know what this party's going to be like, you know, I'm not going to go. So I think it's, it depends. It has to be directed to God always. If it's not directing you to God, then I think that's you, know, you banish it. It's a creaturely love that's not directing you to God. So I think it's different than sort of you know, banishing any feelings because it's going to happen. But it's a question of verifying the love. Then you banish it. <laughs> um, because you can't... It's, it's impossible to banish it. In a sense, I think most people, I suspect most people know when they're allowing a part of their heart to be sort of taken over by, some, by another creature. Yeah, and then, then they're if, if, it, if it's leading them away from God, then they've got to you know, verify that. I mean, if you look for a partner in life, or a wife, or husband, that's legitimate. Yeah, it's different. But if you're trying to live a single life and, and achieve union with God, you're better off without that. Yeah. So, again, this example on the train, I see a, a girl. On the train, you know, she enters my heart because she's there, and I'm oh, what an attractive girl. <laughs> I'm married, so I've verified that love. That's you know, banished from my heart. That's that's the ideal, you know. But it doesn't mean I can't say, you know, that's an attractive girl, beautiful girl. Please God, find her a nice husband. You know. Nothing so it's integrated and it's, it's lifted up rather than, you know, I can't. Sorry, there was a... Oh, I was just going to make a comment, but it's been raised. Oh, has it? Oh, yeah. sorry. <laughs> is there any other... I mean, I'm well, conscious of time, so... Is there any other... Yep. Um, I was going to ask, like, um, in terms of people being promiscuous and things like that, does it say anywhere in the Bible, does um, Pope John Paul talk about how um, that affects a person's soul in terms of when he later on decides to become or decides to um, enter into a marriage with somebody that... It's just, that change. Read, yeah. it's just that I read up on a, on a Catholic website that that um, people that got married um, that had not previously experienced any sexual relations other than their partners were more likely to stay faithful and happy with one another and stay faithful to one another than people who had experienced um, 
things outside of that marriage. And I just wanted to know if there was anything in the Bible or, or anything according to the church that, that talks about how maybe, um, like, you know, promiscuity can lead to somehow the soul being stained or... I don't know if you know where I'm coming from. Yeah, so I think it's two levels here. One's a spiritual level. So you enter the marriage and you've you've asked for forgiveness and you're entering a marriage sacramentally, you receive the grace, you enter that marriage properly, sacramental marriage, you know what you've lived before. But then there's a human dimension. So you've lived a lot of, you know, perhaps bad experiences with love, maybe objectifying others. You're going to, in a sense, bring that to the to the, to the marriage. So I think there's a couple of things. One is to... Um, Those habits, I think. Sorry? Are they habits? They're known as habits, are they? Bad habits? They can be, uh, they can be a, you yeah. know, a vice yeah. that you've had. Um, it's really important, I think, the, the time of engagement then, yeah. to live that you know, properly and um, you know, faithfully. That's, that can be a real challenge for someone like that because, yeah. um, you know, they're used to, you know, you know, different types of relationships. Suddenly they're going to be faithful to someone, even in engagement to live a chaste life. Um, it's very difficult. Um, so they'll receive the, you know, the grace of the sacrament as they, as they, as they, as they move. But it's, they're going to be challenged you know, on a human, human level, obviously. Um, I think one of the key things about once one is married is to pray for the grace of the sacrament. Of marriage because it's it's a sacrament of state so it's there every day every moment it's there it's not like one day and then that's it <laughs> it's not like that in the sense of the other sacraments it's there every day so you pray so same as if you went to priesthood after living not such a good life beforehand you pray every day for the grace of holy orders to live that and so the grace of the sacrament will be with you each day but at the same time, you probably need to be more attentive on a human dimension. You don't go, you know, your mate's putting, you know, one of your old mates is having a bucks on. Probably don't go. Because, you know, you're aware of your weakness. Acknowledge your weakness. Yeah, and you think, well, that's not, that's not you know, I'll, I'll say, you know, is there going to be anything inappropriate there? I'm not yeah. going to go. Yeah. Um, so you, you're aware of your weakness. And it's incredible how grace will, will perfect your nature, mm. will perfect you know, your good intention, your, your decision to marry, and your it will. Um, and so it's you know it's called to be be faithful, and you know to be very heroic you know, faithfulness that will be your sanctification. But it's it's not not as easy as if you've you've been chased or married. So it's a different question. Um, and again, it's different for the man and the woman in some sense. So a woman is not as difficult. They're not as um, drawn to the you know, uh, well, not so so, so drawn yeah. to the physical. Yeah. yeah. I mean, could, there'll still be challenges and wounds, yeah. but not as difficult to say perhaps for the for the man who's, who's lived that life beforehand. Okay. Um, and, um, yeah. So it is a challenge, but uh, not. God is, God is good and, and faithful and, and rewards our, our faithfulness. But I think a key thing is something that I think often people forget is the grace of the sacrament. That, uh, that is really powerful. It helps you to live the, the commitments of marriage faithfulness. Any other questions? I was going to speak a little bit about freedom, but I'll 
it takes them long, so it's well, like you've got to finish there. Like, actually, if you've got time to, to touch on that, yep. yep, and then we'll keep our questions till the very end because that would be an interesting part. Yep, so basically, I was, the, the last point is, is really about um, freedom in the sense that. Um, Often people associate love today and um, with freedom, but a wrong notion of freedom, very wrong notion of freedom, um, or a half notion of freedom. There's really two ideas of freedom. The most common idea today for freedom is, is what we call freedom of indifference, or freedom from something. So if, if someone was to ask you, you know, what, what is freedom, it's a... Well, I'm free to do something. That's freedom. And that's the, most people have that notion today. But this is not the Christian idea of freedom. The Christian idea of freedom is, is freedom for something. Freedom for excellence. Freedom for moral excellence. Freedom for Christ. Freedom for truth. Freedom for God. Freedom for something. And I think this is really such a crucial thing that, um, that again, society's completely lost. Today everyone says, well, one of the goals of society, one of the goals of my life is that I've got to be free. But why? Why be free? Free for what? What's the point of being free if you're just going to do what's wrong? That's not freedom. True freedom is freedom for Excellence, and this is true in love as well. So you may be, I'm free. I can, I can do whatever I like with whoever I please. That's freedom. Most people today equate that with being good. That's a virtuous thing about the modern world. Is there's sexual freedom, freedom about love. It's fantastic, as long as no one's getting hurt. It's a sort of proviso. But again, this isn't true freedom, and the and the. And the idea of freedom really coming really from the Greek philosophers and certainly in the Christian tradition. That we're created free for excellence. And I think a really good example of this, practical example, is, um, is uh, playing the piano. So if you were, this is not a moral example, it's just a practical example. So everybody, well not everybody, but most people are probably free to play the piano. There's a piano in the house, maybe. Um, you know, your parents might have might have had uh, the money to give you lessons. Uh, so you're free to be able to play the piano. So if you sit down in front of the piano, you're free to play it. But, you know, it might sound very good, but you're, you know, you're free to do it. Free to jam away at those keys, making lots of noise. But are you really free there? Are you really free to play the piano? Not really. What do you need to be truly free to play the piano? You need a teacher. You need someone to teach you the rules of playing the piano. The notes. You need someone to be able to teach you how to read music. You need someone to be able to, you know, you need the discipline of action. The discipline of learning. The discipline of rules. And ultimately you'll be free not only to play anything you like, but even to create anything you like, which is this true freedom of playing the piano. 
The first, freedom of indifference. The piano's there, you're there. Jamming away, making lots of terrible noise. Freedom for excellence is moral excellence, learnt by a teacher, teacher of wisdom, learnt through knowing the rules, moral rules, learnt through practice, learning to practice the virtues, perhaps making mistakes, but learning through practice, and ultimately being able to create, you know, magnificent music, moral music, uh, excellent music. It's the same in the moral life, where we um, learn slowly but surely how to create you know, a morally excellent life. Unfortunately, today, uh, most of us, most of society sees you know, freedom and morality just sitting in front of the piano, banging away. You know. doesn't matter what noise you make, as long as you don't hurt anyone, it's fine. Uh, everything goes. Uh, but that's not real moral excellence. We're just at the whim of every desire, every affection, everything that happens to us. I just want pleasure. And it's, it's, it's moral chaos. Yes, we're free, but it's moral chaos. And ultimately, this freedom will enslave us. True freedom in Christ is completely uh, based on a, on a law that will lead us to a moral excellence. To the point where the laws don't even matter because you're so in tune with the, the moral music, so to speak, that you'll play it, even in a very imaginative way, um, an excellent way. I think that's, all, that's a really important thing when speaking about love, it's this idea of freedom, particularly today, because it, it gets completely lost. And, uh, and uh, I know with my students, when I speak a little bit about this stuff at uh, Notre Dame, they're, they're completely lost. Um, <laughs> they have no idea about uh, what love or freedom is truly, and, uh, and unfortunately it's played out in their lives. And, and the culture just points them in complete wrong direction in this. So I think we all have a role in slowly but surely you know, changing this, this culture and uh, you know, almost person by person to, because of the ruin it causes. Paul, I'm really glad that you added the freedom bit onto that because what you said, well, the freedom will enslave us and what you said earlier in your talk that you're never satisfied and I suppose if is what you mean that if you're chasing after pleasure, particularly concupiscible pleasure for the senses, that you never will get really satisfied. And that not being able to be satisfied is the thing that enslaves you. Yeah, and you just keep going. You're like on a treadmill? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you that's can't get off. this enslavement. Yeah. And it's... That's where, where we are today, really. And it's a so concept many ways. that's very hard to understand in the secular world, isn't it? Mm. Because, I mean, and the other really tough thing, I think, is that uh, the elites and the mainstream media, most of the people in the mainstream media, most of the elites are living this life. So that, And if you're in this life, it's incredibly difficult to change and to see the, the truth of things. It's... Um, because it, it pleasure blinds, you know, pleasure really does blind one. And uh, you, know, you can talk moral truth to your blue in the face, but if someone's, you know, on this, you know, treadmill, it's it's pretty hard to get off. <laughs> it's been hell, you know. You also uh, said earlier in the piece that 
that the true love is to look for the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of the, the object of your love. Yeah? Yeah, the is beloved. Is that what you said? Yep, the fulfillment of the beloved. Because that's a very strange thing in the secular world too. Mm. Because, like, you fall in love for your own personal gratification. Mm. Right? Mm. So that's completely opposite. Mm. I think, yeah, I mean, it is. And also, um, most people today, it's, uh, everyone's very immature in love. And, uh, you know, even most, a lot of married couples are very immature in love, not really knowing the, the, the fullness and depth of love. And, um, and I, yeah, I just come back to, I see it a lot in the students when we have tutorials speaking about these different things that there, there's no, Education on uh, on love, or um, the truth of love and truth of freedom, and uh, even on a you know it's, it's not even a religious thing really. It's a, it's a basic, you know. Again, two generations ago, culturally everyone was on the same level. You know, culturally it was a you know love requires a certain responsibility. That means marriage. It means children. Uh, you know, you require the good of the other because. Uh, Maybe you're not talking about heaven. You just, you know, a good life together, a good long life together, and we'll see our grandchildren grow up. Um, but it's not there anymore in the culture. It's very, you know, I'll have a relationship with you for me in a sense, and fleeting. And that's it. Because the sexual part is, it's part of it. So it's, uh, what's the point of getting married? What's the point of responsibility and love and. I mean, most of this is, comes from uh, uh, John Paul II's book, Love and Responsibility, which was written did, before he was Pope. Did he categorise it himself in that way, or did he draw upon the great philosophers? Oh, he drew upon different philosophers, but a lot of it was due to his own experience of um, particularly confessing a lot of young couples and uh, as a university chaplain. And, uh, and young couples, He this is where the book came from. He heard, and he he brought that to his philosophical theological training, and uh, so I took it. I think he took it to a different level and different ideas about it. It's not the easiest book to read, but it's um, it's it's great. Uh, it's very good. So, is there a question? Yes, um, just want to ask you: the sex education that we have in our schools is that sort of like the meaning of love? Absolutely. But so, it was something was it today that I read or somewhere that was. Uh, yeah, I find it hilarious that you know they, all the stats show you know there's more, more uh, teenage pregnancies and there's, there's more, uh, well I think it has gone down a little bit to be honest, but more abortion, more of this. Oh, we need more sex education, you know? which is completely it just shows it is this is what sex is. It's just purely a, it's mechanic, you know the mechanics of it. It gives pleasure and and all this, and but you've got to be careful because you know you get a disease or you have a child afterwards, but. You know, but even so, if you have sex, just make sure you put a condom. Completely bizarre. And then they expect children, adolescents, to be responsible. I mean, it's it's so laughable. It's uh, you know, it's just bizarre. But um, yeah, I think uh, sex education has been a disaster. It still is. Uh, and in the face of all overwhelming evidence, they still plough on. You know, with these. Uh, Let's get more and more. Let's make it younger and younger. Um, it's just, it's just, 
And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's some very good books in the States now about uh, decrying the fact that children can't be children anymore. That we're forcing them to, to grow up in a sense. Uh, very young. They only grow up in a very limited sense. Um, and, uh, not in the truth of things, but in, uh, you know, in other practicalities of life. It's much to the detriment of all, of all I think. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. Can I ask you a question? Thank you. Um, you earlier mentioned a few minutes ago this thing about, oh, if it doesn't hurt anybody, or, I don't know how much it can cause that, but I really do believe it does, in the sense that if uh, you're doing supposedly a victimless um, act, like you know you might have it off with the secretary, and that might you might promote that secretary to you know managing director. Well, that actually does hurt somebody who may validly or should be in that position of managing director. Absolutely. <laughs> I think it also, before it does that though, it uh, degrades her and degrades you. Yeah. So yeah, that's a, you know, the first point is that you're suddenly, you're not who you should be and she's not who she should be and suddenly you're, you know, you're uh, <laughs> but it, you're right. It stops someone else from getting that job, which is not a good thing either. And uh, certainly should be decried. One hundred percent. About that, absolutely. So, there's one other point I was going to make there, and it suddenly escaped me. Uh, about this, it's, uh... oh yeah, that was. Um, I remember I gave this talk once before to a group of young people. It was slightly different, more at younger people. And, uh, they're all you know, young, single, and you know, most of them in relationships with someone. So they all found it a bit more confronting, I think. Um, and one of the guys said, oh, it doesn't really matter if you sleep with girls before you get married, as long as you face the laughter. And um, which is quite common, particularly amongst guys. They think, well, as long as I'm faithful once I get married, which is a little bit similar to what you were saying before. Uh, the two big problems with that, obviously, is one is that you know, each time you do that, it's, you know, it's sin, bad sin, evil. What about the girl you're sleeping with? But even in, in the marriage, though, once you're married, I mean, you're sort of saying, you know, I've, I've asked for forgiveness and whatever, but now I'm getting married, so it doesn't really matter. Um, but you bring that to your marriage. But also, what about for your for your wife? You know, how does she feel? You know, knowing that you, know, you had six partners before you got married. You know, that's a huge thing for her to overcome in marriage, to accept you fully, to love you fully, knowing that you know you've been with these slept with these women. You know. So it's really important for I think a man to remember that. So, you know, how would your wife feel knowing that you know? Had these casual flings throughout before you married, you know, is that something she's going to love about you in your life? And I think it's really important to explain to young younger guys because they tend to, because they don't feel it personally so much. They're not, you know, a guy will sleep with them and it won't be as an important event for them as for a girl. So they think, oh, it doesn't really matter. You know, once I'm married, I'll be faithful. Um, but I think it's always important. Well, what about your wife? How's she going to think about that? But I think, I think that same type of person, once he does get married, he's going to enter into a marriage where he's going to be using contraception. 
Oh, a huge chance, yeah. It'd be more than open to it. Yeah, he's got to use on a lot of the Because love is misguided. Yeah, Actually, Paul, just on that as well, it's a great um, destroyer of the community that you're living in and the community of the whole country. Because if a, a man is promiscuous in his... Um, in, in his most vibrant years, he's, and he's doing it for his own self-gratification, what he's doing is he's seeking attractive women, and attractive women are young women, and he's putting off a final commitment to marriage, and by the time he's ready to get married, which is about maybe in his late 30s, his the likely partners are also in their late 30s, and for a woman, that's too late to start getting Absolutely. properly married. And so you get a lot of women in their late 30s or mid-30s who are no longer attractive to men, and they're just left on the shelf. Mm. And they, you know, it's very, very hard. And then, of course, the whole society suffers, mm. and the whole country suffers. Absolutely. It's all interrelated. Yeah. It's it. That's really true. And this, this book that I mentioned before, Return to Modesty, uh, it's really fascinating because she she says that women have been shortchanged because they've been told, you know, you've got to be attractive to men and, you know, sort of you know, be at their, you know, pleasure, so to speak. Um, but to this reverse effect, and suddenly, you know, they're late 30s and, you know, they what, what do I do now? Whereas, you know, traditionally the idea was that the woman, you know, who was you know, dressed modestly, modestly to attract the man, but only to a certain point, to, to woo the man to, to, a, to a commitment rather than, you know, a one-night stand. And, uh, and so it was all sort of interrelated, this... I mean, the sexual revolution started it all, but... And it's, yeah, you're right. I mean, it affects the economy, affects the birth rates, affects... A healthy society. Healthy society is basically... Um, and it's the great uh, secret of the world today, the Western world, is that, um, you know, we're all going to go broke because uh, of the ageing population. <laughs> and governments don't speak about it because they, <laughs> it's not very popular. <laughs> so um, it's extraordinary, but, I mean, it's, you know... A place like Germany, I mean, it's going to have um, a majority of its population in 20 years is going to be retired. I mean, it's going to pay for it. Yeah, well, there's other cultures which will take over, which have a bigger population. Yeah, I mean, in, in, yeah, in, 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 in Islam. Um, yeah, yeah. Because the, actually, as it is, it's irreversible. They say that in 30 years, um, Europe is not going to be Christian anymore. Yeah, I know. Because of the birth rate only. Mm. It's irreversible. Yeah. That's from this point. Yeah, it's just crazy. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's a topic for another night. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you very much indeed, Paul. That was a pleasure. Uh, there's been a few really interesting highlights there that are very well worth um, you know, spreading around. So, yes. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture 
by Mr. Paul Morrissey. For more Lumen Verum apologetics lectures, visit cradio.org.au.